Alright guys, hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, coming at you from a very, very, very warm day, day 62 of my COVID-19 lockdown. Very excited to share this poem with you because it was a blooming easy one to research. I am SDR8 Talk English on Twitter. If you search up the full context, you can find on Amazon all of my notes for this. The Power and Conflict book is out and it is very very good actually i have been recommending it to everyone of course but it was an absolute beast to research i hope you check it out full context amazon youtube straight talking english you can see my face and i'm hoping the video i put together for this one will be absolutely lovely and hopefully historically accurate uh patreon slash straight talking english if you like what i'm doing that's wicked a little pound a month you can support what i'm doing and top tier subscribers can commission me to do an essay or an episode on anything of their choice within reason i don't want to do it about chinchillas or nothing but like literature wise i will totally do it if you pop in as top tier so i mentioned war photographer by caroline duffy blooming easy for the context because it is based on a real dude don mccullen he had a exhibition at the tate britain last year i think and he was a friend of caroline duffy all of the incidents in the poem the dead man's wife the half-formed shadow rural england belfast beirut phnom penh all of it's real all of this stuff happened and the image we get is him going around duffy's house or her going around his house he's got a lovely place in somerset apparently and chilling about it and him updating her on what's going on in his life so i am drawing very very extensively on don mccullen's autobiography called unreasonable behavior it is very very good actually just as like an entertaining read i'm telling you now he does cuss a little bit and there is a mention of something racial when i'm talking about phnom penh so just bear that in mind those words are not said by mccullen he is referencing someone else but just keeping your heads up and hopefully this won't be an episode where i cuss right don mccullen right, originally i really really wanted my dad to do the voice because he is also an elderly cockney much like mccullen however lockdown i was not able to get him so i asked my father-in-law to do the reading similar age as mccullen and then my laptop died uh screen broke i had to get a new laptop put everything up on google drive and it came back corrupted Ugh. so just imagine imagine an authentic voice of a bro in uh, <laughs> a bro in uh, the 30s uh, born in the 30s uh, born second world war ish so let's start at the very beginning it's a very good place to start as maria von trapp said mccullen starts by saying like all my generation in london i'm a product of hitler i was born in the 30s and bombed in the 40s then hollywood moved in and started showing me films about violence at a very early age i can remember overhearing my father telling my mother about a severed head one of his fellow air raid wardens had found during the blitz and showing around in a box gruesomeness of this sort was part of the course for londoners during and just after the second world war and it rubbed off on the children too the bomb sites became our playgrounds we went out hunting 
jumped in for shrapnel and the foil dropped by the Germans to deflect radar. We lived with nightly bomb terrors. Air raid shelters, like the one in our back garden, became our second homes. There was a pungent smell about these shelters, the smell of damp air trapped in that concrete shell. I lived that smell. I recall it as fondly as other people remember the smells of summer or of winter fires. Children played at war because war was all there was. I remember playing toy soldiers with my little brother Michael. We would draw them up in battle order in the earth and take their heads off by shying clods of earth. I was later to remember this battle. The play was unnervingly like the real thing. So it was born off Tottenham Court Road. Um, nice area now, uh, if you can get it. To be honest, my sister lived uh, just off Tottenham Court Road on uh, Russell Square when uh, she was a student. And beautiful location. I was full of envy at that time because uh, when I was a student, I lived in Terrace House in Coventry. But he moved to Finsbury Park, um, which now, it's all right, it's on a Victoria line. But if we're talking in the 50s, rough as weird coincidence of the day since you know you guys want to know about my life i will i like to research when i'm traveling around it's what i do on the bus if you ever see me about and i have my head buried in a book that looks really disturbing probably researching something and i was going to see uh dropkick murphy's uh ali pally when they played in february and reading about don mccollin on the bus as you do and just where it got to the page that said and then i moved to finsbury park i arrived at finsbury park tube it was a very bizarre coincidence i kind of love it like this time i was listening to a really good podcast called q anon anon they were talking about michael kane for some reason as i was walking past michael kane's birthplace to go to work sometimes i feel like if i was a believer in coincidence then i would probably develop some faith but sadly no mccullin does his thing he has an enthusiasm for photography and he gets kind of like a copying backroom art kind of job but actually it's a total coincidence that he became famous he was just kind of hanging around after national service and there was this gang in greys in essex and he would hang around there because they had a dance club oh lies actually sorry i misread that it's called greys dancing academy it was on the seven sisters road he would hang around because there were girls and there was this gang he said the governors were still lolling around in greasy spoon cafes feet on the table weaving their fantasies the only visible change was a new taste in Dillinger-style hats. Like, um, classic gangster, you know, um, machine gun in a violin case. I was about to reference uh, the video for Social Distortions, Machine Gun Blues, uh, but I realised many of you may not be into Social Distortion. They're a fantastic band. But look on the YouTube video for Machine Gun Blues if you want to see exactly what I'm talking about. Once I had got my camera out of porn, they were only too keen for me to produce glossy cinema-still photos of them in their new images. Then I ventured more ambitious pictures of them in different locations. I enjoyed handling the camera, but had no thought of what to do with the photographs beyond entertaining their subjects. Alright, making friends with these people. But then, he goes home and his mum says, That gang you ha hang around with at Grey's, she said, they're in trouble. A policeman's been killed up there. It turned out a man older than was usual in the gangs had been at the centre of the Barney. Um, Cockney rhyming slang, Barney, Barney Rubble from the Flintstones, Trouble. Ronald Marwood, 
A 25-year-old scaffolder from Islington had gone to the academy with a knife to settle some vengeful argument, though knuckle dusters were as far as things went usually. He probably thought only of intimidation, but when the gangs took side and fought on the pavement outside, a policeman tried to wedge himself between the opposing sides and had been stabbed in the back. He died from loss of blood. Marwood fled, but his father persuaded him to give himself up. He was telling his friends, like, this is what I know about them. I've been to school with a bunch of them. This gang hadn't been directly involved in the murder, but he chopped his pictures to the Observer, and turns out he had a bit of a talent for it. He was 23 when he did that, and he now had this like weird job as freelancing for the observer and another magazine called the news chronicle one of his first assignments is in cyprus cyprus now is pretty chill but there is a big division between greece and turkey turkish cypriot people greece cypriot people at this point in history cyprus had just got its independence british soldiers are on the street as peacekeepers and there are so many just atrocities happening between the two sides and this is where it comes in with the man's asking permission from the man's wife to do what he must he recollects this in his autobiography as quite a long incident he says that this incident is when he grew up he saw someone losing their dad in the same way that he'd lost his dad and that's why it changed him so much all right let me tell you about it morning one the soldier said want to see a dead body mate there's one over there been hit in the face with a shotgun not very pleasant i thought oh christ am i going to be able to handle it remember he's only in his early 20s at this point i came to this man's feet which were splayed and my eyes traveled up the length of his body to his face what was left of it i could see the dark brown eyes fixed in a stare as if looking at the sky i thought back to my father's death i thought this is what it's like i thought it's bad but it's not too bad for me to bear so i walked away the soldier said oh there's two more in that house I went to the stone house and knocked on the window. There was silence. I turned the handle and opened the door. The early morning cold siphoned out the warm, sticky air. It was a sticky carnage that I saw. The floor was covered with blood. A man was lying on his face, another flat on his back. There wasn't a mark on him or seemed to be none. There was no sound. I let myself in and closed the door. I could smell something burning. In another room, I found a third man dead. Three men dead, a father and two sons, one in his early twenties, the other slightly older. Suddenly the door opened and people came led in by what I learned was the wife of the youngest man. They'd only been married a few days. All the presents were laid out in the front room all shot up in the gun battle. Broken cups and saucers, glass objects and ornaments brought as gifts to the wedding. I'm in serious trouble now, I thought. They'll think I'll have trespassed in their house. I'd already taken photographs. It wasn't just trespassing the legal sense I'd been guilty of, for I trespassed on death and emotion too. The woman picked up a towel to cover her husband's face and started to cry. I remember saying something awkward like, forgive me, I'm from a newspaper and I cannot believe what I'm looking at. I pointed my hand with the camera in it, asking for an invitation to record the tragedy. An older man said, take your pictures, take your pictures. They wanted me to do it. I was to discover that all Middle Eastern people want to express and record their grief. Grief is something they express very vividly. It's not just the Turks and Greeks, but a Mediterranean thing, a very outward display of mourning. When I realised I'd been given the go-ahead to photograph, I started composing my pictures in a very serious and dignified way. 
the first time I'd pictured something of this immense significance and I felt as if a cam if I had a canvas in front of me and I was stroke by stroke applying the composition to a story that was telling itself I was I realized later trying to photograph in the way that Goya painted or did his war sketches uh, look at Goya's paintings of the Spanish Civil War that's what he's talking about eventually the woman knelt down by the side of her young husband and cradled his head I was very young then and I knew that pain and I found it hard not to burst into tears. When I walked out the house I was shattered, I was dehydrated, my mouth was glued together. So the images that we get is the half-formed ghost of him like bringing it all together, of him developing this picture, remembering this incident where he was forced to grow up. and. It's, it's just terrible, man. Like, it's just absolutely brutal what this lad was going through. I actually find his pictures to be incredibly stunning. These fabulous black and white photos of what he's doing. And he is alive now. I bet I could go and meet him. And hopefully, if I don't annoy him with this podcast, haha, maybe I could one day. Who knows? Right, let's move on. Phnom Penh. Phnom Penh is the capital of Cambodia. Cambodia, pretty chill. Ancient civilization, lovely country. Bit of a problem though, was somewhat involved in the Vietnam War. 1965, the Vietnam War extended into the country. There is US bombing of Cambodia from 69 till 73 as part of the Vietnam War. Even though we've got artificial borders between countries, which I'm going to talk about a bit more in our tissue episode, the jungle is ongoing, right? And after the 1970 coup, uh, the Khmer Rouge take power they take phnom penh in 1975 between 1975 and 1979 is what is called the cambodian genocide it is absolutely horrific i do not feel like i could do justice to it and it is its own series on its own i'm just going to quote wikipedia here because it does it very scientifically the khmer rouge regime was highly autocratic xenophobic paranoid and repressive Many deaths resulted from the regime's social engineering policy and the Maha Laut Plol, an imitation of Chinese China's Great Leap Forward, which called the Great Chinese Famine, like where the Chinese Communist Party forced people to change their agricultural practices, which were a load of old guff, and then everyone starved because, like, we need food. The Khmer Rouge's attempts at agricultural reform through collectivization led to widespread famine. Insistence on self-sufficiency even in the supply of medicine led to the deaths of many thousands from treatable diseases. The Khmer Rouge regime murdered hundreds of thousands of their perceived political opponents and its racist emphasis on national purity resulted in the genocide of Cambodian minorities. Arbitrary executions and torture were carried out by its cadres against perceived subversive elements or during the genocidal purges of its own ranks between 1975 and 78. Ultimately, the Cambodian genocide led to the death of one 1.5 to 2 million people around 25% of Cambodia's population absolutely heartbreaking read when did you last see your father for a memoir of this it is a horrific story our hero our protagonist Don McCullen was there during this but a lot of his autobiography um 
takes place within the Vietnamese war and a lot of the incidents that I feel best reflect this sense of like guilt and alienation are his Vietnam war experiences which also includes Cambodia because jungles. I've got to share this because this is a bit in the book where I was like I can't even and I have to like just close my eyes because I have to put this book in my bag now because it's terrible. I heard some heavy incoming shells one morning when I was out with the marine close to the citadel wall. We both jumped into a foxhole by the wall one the NVA North Vietnamese army and dug for themselves for the impending marine invasion. We were all cowering under our helmets when the Americans said god damn it there's an awful smell in here. I noticed this hole was not firm underfoot even though we were in sand it was too soft. I looked down and saw a row of fly buttons by my mo- by my boots. Content warning, this is gross. We were both crouched on the stomach of a north dead of a dead North Vietnamese soldier and our weight had caused the stomach to excrete. Despite the shelling, we both leapt out and ran off in different directions to find other bunkers. In this kind of war you're on a schizophrenic trip. You cannot equate what is going on with anything else in life. If you've known white sheets and comfort and peace in the real world, then you find yourself living like a sewer rat, not knowing day from night you cannot put the two worlds together. None of the real world judgments seem to apply. What's peace, what's war, what's dead, what's living, what's right, what's wrong? You don't know the answers. Just live if you can, day by day. So this alienation is coming in again and again and again. Belfast is where the like personal danger comes in okay okay i know he was in a shell pit in the last extract belfast of course think back to my episode that i did on seamus heaney and the troubles so he is photographing in belfast at the time of bloody sunday there is intense violence on the streets between the brits and the ira and ordinary people are caught in the crossfire over this question of northern irish independence He said it might not have been a full-scale war, but covering events in Northern Ireland was an extremely dangerous business. Apart from being mistaken by one side for a member of the other, any time I could be struck with a stray missile, a bottle or a brick and suffer severe brain damage, as could any other innocent passerby using the streets to go about his or her normal business. The hazards of civilian life in this province are nowhere more vividly illustrated than in an extraordinary press picture of me running from both bricks and an English Saracen armoured car that was trying to run me down in mistake for a demonstrator. The vehicle has its wheels off the ground and looks as if it was trying to seize me in its jaws. Bricks held at the Saracen came heading for me. Days, my days. Right, 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 right. As if there's not enough horrific stuff I'm sharing with you today. And seriously, the power and conflict ones, like, they're quite sanitised unless you go into the context and then you're like, oh God, everything is awful. And that's like when I have to rant it out and pace around my house and like put a book in my bag because of what the heck have I just read. By the way, the worst one for that, what I literally had to close the book and go for a walk was when I was doing Sign of Four and I was talking about the uh, the racist implications of the native Tongo. And I was reading a book about um, the history of black Britons and I was thinking like, oh, okay, you know, maybe I'll find some stuff that's quotable. Like, uh, you know, we don't think black people are very good, says Mr. Man Who Owns Slaves. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. And then the guy writing it went into so much detail about like vile texts vile practices 
I just had to shut it because I just felt sad about the world, man. So yeah, Patreon, haha, <laughs> if you want to support me and pay for money for when I'm pacing around and I need a stiff G&T, then uh, you know where it is. Let's go back to Beirut. He was in there during the start of the trouble in the Lebanon. He sensed <laughs> or asked someone what's going on here and he hotfoots it over there and he says i heard screaming and shouting and saw women and children being herded from a stairwell two men were standing with their hands up looking very disturbed the women were giving them furtive glances they were obviously husband or brothers and they were being followed by a gang of phalange don't know if i'm saying that right f-a-l-a-n-g-e and that is the uh the rebels involved in lebanon if you can hear a voice in the background it's because it's locked down i'm working from home and my recording desk is about four meters away from my boyfriend who's in a uh, May Inc. A phalange fighter. I photographed them. A phalange fighter came over to me and cocked his rifle. It's the same man who had threatened me before. I told you, no photographs. I'm going to kill you, he said. No, no, I didn't photograph you. I photographed only the women, I said. Of course, it wasn't true. I got him as well. He tried to wrench the camera out of my hand. I ducked away and said, look, I've got a pass, look. He calmed down and I backed towards the stairwell where the two men were still being held. The Falange had an old M1 carbine trained on these two men. They shot him down at point-blank range. As he was falling, one of the men used what air was left in his lungs to say, Allah. I heard one that held one of the banisters tight. Hang on to yourself, I thought. You can see a lot of this today, so hang on. Don't give the game away now. And like, he had seen a lot. He has seen a lot. He acknowledges that from the start to the end of his life, he is happy to become tougher that that recognition of like i am having to do this to myself that is an issue like this guilt at having to do it to yourself the guilt at not being able to do it to people so that they do not care onto the last line is shifting the blame to us we are part of the them because we're all guilty of it we see a sad picture and we're like oh that's sad but then we don't actually act on it. You know, that's when they got the charity adverts up on the tube. And it's like, you know, for £3 a month, you could help feed this little doggy. And, like, you're saturated by it. You don't respond in the way that we would if it was new. We are the they, because we do not care. And he is doing this stuff to himself. But he cares less and less as the time goes on. So what's this thing about the editor? All right, all right. So, obviously, if you write something or produce something and it's going to an audience, you want to have an editor. You want to have someone to check it over. I have my fabulous editor for my books. She is an absolute legend. And she kicks my butt because my prose is terrible in her first draft. He was getting more and more and more frustrated as time was going on. McCullen has moved away from war work. And it starts drying up and the demand is as he puts it no more starving third world babies more successful business around their weekend barbecues he said when i began as a photographer i believed that my work would suffer if i allowed it to become political in the event it turned out to be nothing but political for i consistently took the side of the underdog and the underprivileged it now becomes so political i found myself having to fight merely to be allowed to take pictures and i was losing that fight he got more and more and more frustrated with this. He decided to unload his feelings 
to a friend of his who writes for Granta magazine. The statement he gave as part of this interview was, I still work for the Sunday Times, but they don't use me. I stand around in the office, I don't know why I'm there. The paper's completely changed. It's not a newspaper, it's a consumer magazine. Really no different from a mail-order catalogue. What do I do? Model safari suits, cover some women's institute reception. Someone in the office said recently I should think up new approaches to my work. You ought to learn how to use strobe lighting because we don't want to use any more of those photos because of... People are starting to reject or at least turn their back on my salt. They seem happy with the way the press is developing. They certainly don't need me to show them nasty pictures. I should wise up. What is the point of killing yourself for a newspaper proprietor who wouldn't bat an eyelid on hearing you died? Incidentally, how I feel about my former head of department at my last job. I joked about it, but actually I think I was serious. If I suddenly dropped down dead in the classroom, I thought he'd just get a little broom, sweep my corpse to one side, and then just call for cover. Which I maintain, yes, though where you would get a broom in an English department, I don't know. So the editor is doing the choosing. When the editor picks from a hundred agonies in black and white, it's linking to McCullen's conflict he's having with the times. He quits it. He walks. He's like, laters, loser. He does a lot of travel photography. He's now independent. He has just done an exhibition slash book on poverty in England, which is fabulous. He does some advertising work as well, doing whatever. Now as a very elderly man, he's retired down to this place in full stop rural England, full stop, his sanctuary down in Somerset. He summed it up as essentially I'm still a newspaper animal, confronted with a lot of work I don't particularly like. I now have the most beautiful house in the world, but I leave it to take pictures I often find ludicrous. If you ask me deep down what spiritual satisfaction there is in the work, I have to say almost entirely none. For that I flee to landscape in Somerset and to foreign parts. All this has little to do with the real reason for the shadow on my mind. That comes from something different, something utterly dreadful. Something that told me fate had really turned her face on me. I'm not a dead man now. I'm an insomniac, not sleeping, not eating. I feel wild. I'm angry, actually. I'm angry. The last two years must go down in my small history, in all the dreadful years of worst of all. I don't like going out into the light when I'm in the dark room. I like the consistency of the dark. It keeps me safe. The dark room is a very good place to be. It's a womb. I feel I have everything there that I need. My mind, my emotions, my passions, my chemicals, my papers, my negatives and my direction. In my darkroom, I'm totally together. Alright, alright. In his darkroom, he is finally alone. Bang. Almost word for word, we can see McCullen sitting down with Caroline Duffy and almost telling her that that was in the autobiography and her kind of turning it. But the spiritual thing is really interesting as well. He says he has no spirituality in his work, yet Duffy's presented him as being like a priest intoning a mass. All flesh is grass. It's part of the Catholic funeral service, like ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So she sees a spirituality in his work that he doesn't. He has to remind himself that he's in rural England 
And yeah, McCullen is letting out his feelings in his autobiography. But I don't know how restrained he is in real life. So I've seen interviews like where he's talking about his exhibitions and he seems like a professional dude. But then he is talking about his um, his work. He's there doing that interview for a reason. So I can't really tell you whether the restraint in the poem is reflecting this real character or whether he is actually a very passionate person and she's painted him as being this public conservative where they do not care just another aeroplane kind of person so there you go honestly love it get Don McCullin's unreasonable behavior there's a lot of just fantastic stories in there all the stuff he talks about with um mercenaries is compulsive reading but also oh my god it's so terrible if you like this episode uh my full context aqa power and conflict has got that and a lot more and interesting stuff and it's actually pretty good hint i'm gonna have some subliminal messaging where i like have buy my books like with a beat underneath or something i think i'm gonna go for that thank you ever so much for listening excellent job with your listening today str8 talk english on twitter straighttalkenglish.com full context series youtube slash straight talking english have a look at my face patreon slash straight talking english if you like what i do if you don't like what i do subscribe go on patreon anyway but put a little message like spend this on harmful things i don't know thanks very much guys i'll be back next week have a good one